Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. What began as a limited series has become a permanent series on the AI Podcast Network. I'll be focusing on sales and leadership moving forward. And if our loyal readers, yes, you listening are my loyal readers, ever want me to venture outside of those realms, please let me know. Maybe I'll do something as a true limited series later this year during the holidays. Today, I am joined by the author of the book, The Extra Two Minutes, How Spending an Extra Two Minutes on Nearly Anything in Your Sales Career Will Take You from Good to Best in Class, and he is David Carruthers. Welcome to the podcast, David. How are you today? I'm good, Josh. How how are things your way? They are very, very good. Very good. Very excited to have you as our first guest here. Um, Now, for many of the loyal readers and the loyal listeners of the other podcasts on the AI Network, likely already know you from prior episodes, but let's learn a few more things about you today, if that's okay. Absolutely. All right. So does the toilet paper go over or under in your house? Well, you're asking me what happens in my house. You're not asking me (laughs) my preference. Everyone knows it should go under. But that doesn't mean that that's what happens consistently. In a house of six, I'd say we're batting 500. Under. See, I'm an over guy. It has to be. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I think that way. But, you know, truthfully, I don't really care one way or the other. Yeah. When when you need it, you're not going to analyze how it's on the road. Exactly. (sighs) Exactly. All right. Now, David, what's the last book that you read? Um, I have read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss no less than three times in a row uh, this year. And outside of just consistently going through the process of writing the extra two minutes and rereading that, I have have read that multiple times. Highly recommended for everybody. Um, It's a game game changer. All right. That's going to go on my, uh, my reading list. Very good. All right. Now, final question. Would you say it's nature or nurture that's made you the person you are today? That's a really good question. It's not necessarily something I think about all the time. Um, I think that it's really probably a combination of the two. I mean, you have to nurture yourself. You have to improve yourself and, and develop skills within you, which I would classify as nurture. But uh, I think that a lot of the time how you get pointed in the right direction as far as what you need to work on, what you need to nurture and all of that uh, has to do with the circumstances that you find yourself in, uh, which I would classify as nature. Yeah. Very good. All right. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. Now, David, can you give us a quick five minute background on yourself? Start back at childhood, maybe when you began your working career, just to give the loyal readers an idea of who you are if they don't already know who you are. Yeah. So um, I can do a, a quick summary. I was born up on the lake outside of Cleveland, Ohio and Lorraine, Ohio. A lot of my 
extended family still lives in Lorraine, Amherst, and Elyria. My dad was a state trooper uh, in Ohio, got transferred to headquarters. So we moved to outside of Columbus to the metropolis of Circleville, Ohio. Little known fact and a great way to get his attention, but that's also where John Maxwell went to high school. And so when I saw Maxwell speak uh, at a church last year, I knew based on the assembly line they had set up for how he signs books that if I wanted to engage with him, I needed to come up with something really crafty, really quick. So they, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a Maxwell event or not, not to go down a rabbit hole, but this is pretty humorous. They give you a sticky note that you write your name on so that when Maxwell takes your book, he reads your name on the sticky note, calls you by name, makes eye contact and never looks at what he's signing. And there were probably a thousand people here waiting to get this book signed. So when he, when he got to me in line, he went, he said, David, how are you today? And I just looked at him and I said, Circleville, Ohio. (laughs) And he's like, and and I derailed, like he derailed when I was talking to him. So I won. He's like, Circleville. I said, yeah. I said, that's where you're from. And I said, that's where my roots are from. I said, I lived on Atwater Avenue when I lived there as a kid. And he's like, oh my gosh. And so I actually, I was probably the guy in that line everybody hated because I got yep. two and a half minutes instead of 30 seconds. But nice. it worked. It proved, it proved that I could disrupt that process, which is good. It helps, helps me with my sales game too. But Well, that's the extra two minutes, right? It is. It is. It's the extra two minutes above and beyond the 30 seconds I was supposed to have. Maybe not the most positive experience with that though. But when my brother and sister were born, uh, they're twins. My mom said, eh, you're done. No more cop, cop life for you. So my dad took a job as an accident investigator for U.S. Steel. So I'm going to fast forward through a lot of years of my life because we bounced around to all of the U.S. Steel towns. We went back to outside of Cleveland, to Pittsburgh, to Birmingham. And then, you know, we moved around quite a bit after that because my father then moved into risk, you know, safety director role, then risk management and VP of risk management, then senior VP of risk management, constantly moving up the ladder uh, in his corporate career. So a lot of people thought I was in the military, you know, or we were in the military because we were literally moving every two to three years. That part of nature is what I think really formed who I am today, to be honest with you, because when you're going through turbulent times in your life, you know, you're dealing with going through puberty and hormones and you know, back in those days, bullying was not such a defined thing. You just got in a fist fight, dealt with it, and then you were back playing with the people the next day. So, mm-hmm. you know, you learn things like neighborhood dispute resolution. You learn how to make friends with people and how to insert yourself into a new environment and try and set yourself up for success. And truthfully, um, growing up, I wasn't always good at that. You know, I started school early. My parents had me start a year earlier than what I probably could have. Oh, wow. So, um, I started, I was, I was four years old when I started kindergarten, which meant that I was only 17 when I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. And so, you know, you don't think about stuff like that, but, um, I was six foot two, 190 pounds when I graduated high school and, and went to college to play baseball. After my freshman year of college, which would have been my senior year of high school, I was 6'4", 225. Wow. So the difference in size and muscle mass that I had equated to a faster fastball, which means my life could have been exponentially different had I actually not gone through school 
as early as as early as I had. And so it's interesting because I read, I think I want to say it's either um I think it's Outliers, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Uh, I read everything that guy writes. He's fantastic. But he talks about how the hockey season is broken up and why all the best hockey players are born in March or April. And it has to yeah. do with the league cutoff and, and everything else. So I think that applies to baseball as well. Oh, it does, man. It, yeah. it, 100%. And so, um, you know, I was always playing with people sometimes two years older than me. Which, which was good for competition, but my body wasn't able to compete as much as my mind was. So I, um, you know, I went to college. I, I tell people all the time, I, you know, I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist home. And when I left to go to college, I was kind of like when the Amish people go out for that year to sow their wild oats, I just went buck wild. and Spring, I think. Yeah, and so uh, college ended up not being good the first time around. Um, I took it much more seriously the second time around, and that's because I was running a grocery store for 80 hours a week and going to school at night. So wow. I finished getting my degree, and for the first 10 years of my adult life, I ran grocery stores and super targets and then got into the insurance industry right at 30 years old because my oldest son was two years old, didn't have a clue who I was because I was never around. And I just said, this is not who I'm going to be. I, I will never be the guy sitting at his computer with his kids tugging on his arm, asking me to go play with them. The answer is yes, 100% of the time, regardless of what I'm doing. And, you know, I found that insurance, uh, even though you have to work really, really hard to get yourself established, yeah. would eventually provide me with the type of work-life integration that that would allow me to be the kind of, of husband and father that I wanted to be. And ultimately, that's the first job that I have above any and everything else. Yeah. Very good. And so I've been in insurance now for going on, you know, 16, 17 years. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I've been a salesman my whole life. I've been in sales, literally kids in the checkout line, wanting that pack of gum are in sales. They have to close the deal with their mom to get the pack of gum. And I don't think that we look at that, but you know, I have just always been attracted to, sales for whatever the reason maybe it's because i can control my destiny maybe part of me is i like to win you know i like to uh, i like the challenges that are involved in it and so um, i talk about that in the book so i don't want to get too much into it yeah i was going to say we forward we've got a story about uh you at a very young age Uh, (laughs) so we've got we've got that to uh that to talk about um and so now you are the what what title do you give yourself at Florida Risk Partner? Principal, owner, CEO? Everything. Listen, if 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 I'm filling out official paperwork that requires a, a, an authority to mm-hmm. sign it, I'm the principal. Mm-hmm. Anybody else I talk to, I simply tell I work for Florida Risk Partners or I work at a company called Florida Risk Partners. I usually don't identify myself is the person who owns it because I don't want people to think that I'm beating my chest. It's not really as glorious as it sounds all the time. Okay. Well, in addition to that, you also have Killing Commercial. Um, and full disclosure to everyone listening, I am part of David's Killing Commercial program. And for those of you in the insurance industry, you want to elevate your game beyond what we're going to be talking about over these next few episodes, um, then you'll want to get in touch with David to see if his program is a good fit for you and if David um, is, you know, a good fit for, for you and, and you a good fit for them. Um, 
so yeah, let's. Uh, I guess let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. And so I want to start with the foreword because I always feel that it's a foundation for why the author wrote the book, and too often it's overlooked. So you start off telling a story of what I believe has to be your favorite clients because or your favorite <laughs> client, because I've heard you talk about him multiple times, and that's John Gennaro. Did I say that name correctly? You did. And okay. yeah, he he is he's a client, he's a friend, and he is certainly entertaining and he certainly keeps me on my toes. Well, good. Well, good. So you write that John called you extra, as in you take things to the next level. And maybe, as you put it, not in Ron Burgundy and Sex Panther extra. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, we're talking about the movie Anchorman. Uh, but you go above and beyond. And so here's what I want to know about this, because I have this philosophy in that there are milestone moments in people's lives and they define who you are. It could be the first time you had the confidence to stand up to a bully. Or maybe when you ask that person for the first time to go out on a date or the first time you had to lead a group. But you can always look back on these milestone moments and say, that's what helped mold me into the person that I am today. And not necessarily, you know, that you that it, that moment is happening, but you can look back. So tell me, when did that moment happen for you um, to realize that you were kind of extra and how did that change who you were, because obviously you'd been doing something up to that point. Other people had recognized it, but finally someone said, David, you're extra. Yeah, it's interesting because he was really kind of busting my chops, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't even know what the word meant, and I talk about that. I, it, was, yeah. it was literally like the whole sequence of Anchorman when Ron Burgundy can't figure out how to use the phrase when in Rome, and he kept getting it wrong. I just – I had never heard – I don't have teenage girls, so I didn't know – you know, that that was even even a word uh, that was used to describe people. But, you know, for me, I figured out that it doesn't really cost any more in most cases to take things to a level different than what anybody else that you're competing with takes things. Um, you know, it could be I, I could give millions of examples, but for me. Um, you know, I, I can, I look back over my career, literally could give you, you know, thousands of things that I've done, but I, I think really it's not a matter of when, cause I think I've kind of always been that way to a certain degree, but it's more the why, okay. uh, why, why I am that way. Um, and for me, I like the money involved in sales. I like winning. I like the kill, but more than anything else, I like a solid, thank you note or a shout out that says, Hey man, I really appreciate you doing this for me. I mean, look at, look at what happens when we have guests on power producers, right? Right. People come on customized artwork, customized swag box. They get a tumbler, a coffee mug and a t-shirt with that artwork on there that are literally each one of a kind items. Those people are the only people in the whole world who own those things or have those things and they love it. They go nuts over it. And to me, that is the best reward ever. I don't care about, about dollars associated or anything else. I would like to know number one, that I have done something to go above and beyond that has made an impact on somebody else. Yeah. And then also that it made enough of an impact that they turn around and, and reach out to me and say, Hey, 
thank you for doing this. This is the coolest thing anybody's ever done. If I can get that message that this is the coolest thing anybody's done, I've won. Like that, yeah. that is, that is the Holy grail for me. What really takes it to the next level is when I see people who have seen me lead by example for what I would say is the extra two minutes. And then they show me a way or reach out to me and say, let me tell you what I did. And I see that, wow, you read my book or you listened to me speak and you went and did exactly what I talk about. Yeah. And, and it, that to me, like, so when you start pushing content out, that changes the game because you don't put, you don't write a book to get rich. You don't write blog posts to get rich. You don't create videos to get rich. You do those things to get credibility and to show, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's been a mile in my shoes. He can help me. The validation that you get for the countless hours that you spend doing those things is seeing other people use what you teach them and win. And mm-hmm. to me, that's the ultimate validation. So that's what fuels every extra thing that I do. Very good. Very good. Yeah, it's it's definitely evident in everything that you've done. Uh, the few months that I've known you, definitely. So in the book, you write um, about that your um, first job or your earliest job, which actually got you into a little bit of trouble with your elementary school principal was selling monkey balls to your classmates. And I, I actually Googled that to see what they look like. They are weird looking things. Um, did I do good? I said they're like oh, a yeah. spherical brain. Yes, you did very good. So did you ever have a passion or a drive to be an entrepreneur before that? Or was that the first time something like that happened to you and you thought, you know what, I, I can do this? Honestly, you know, I'm the guy that ran the blow pop, the blow pop operation out of his backpack all the way through school. So if you needed okay. candy or whatever else, I had that, you know, I would go to Sam's, get the bulk bag, mark it up to the reasonable amount and all of that. I would tell you as I look back and as I was writing the foreword of the book, that's really the first thing where I would say, okay, I saw an opportunity, I seized the opportunity and I made some money or made, you know, got some return on my investment yeah. in, in what it is that I was doing. Um, but that's kind of my MO, man. If, if, if anybody ever asked me to, cla- uh, you know, sort of classify myself and say, what makes you different or what do you think yeah. is unique about you? Um, you know, what, what I think makes me unique is I recognize potential opportunity very, very quickly and mm-hmm. I don't waste time going after it. Like I will go 90 to nothing after that opportunity. If I get halfway down the road and it's not going to work out, I'll cut bait and move on to the next thing. Yeah. But I'm not afraid to make a mistake. I'm not afraid to take a chance. And I believe enough in how I've honed that skill over the years. Thankfully, as I've gotten older, I win more times with seizing opportunities than I lose. That's good. Well, thank you for that. Now, your next job that you write about um, is your first door-to-door sales job. And that happened when you had moved to Alabama. And I have to be honest and admit that I had to look up what a potholder loom looked like. (laughs) Well, it's like the silly bands were a couple of years ago or whatever, right? That all the kids were using to weave. That was the potholder loom of the new generation. Exactly. So it looked vaguely familiar. And I was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Um, But you go on to write about the three things that people in Alabama love. And I knew about two of them, but I didn't know about the first one. So beans that cooked on the stove all day, Alabama or Auburn and church. 
So then you decide to make these pot holders in the school colors to sell to people in your neighborhood. And what impressed me most about the story was that you just didn't go out and make 100 pot holders in each color, but instead you made samples of them to show people and you took the orders. So being in fifth grade, how did you know to do it that way rather than another way? You know what? It's interesting, man, because I, I really think that and you're probably too much younger than me to remember this. Maybe not. Um, but when when I was in elementary school, we used the, like the, the highlight of our week, month, whatever it was, is when we had the ability to order the scholastic books. Right? I do remember that. Yes. OK, yeah. so we would have this flyer come out and you would be able to go in and pick exactly what you wanted, place your order, and then it would come. I have to believe subconsciously. Mm -hmm. That's why I did it that way. I wish I could tell you I was some childhood prodigy and a genius that I had this whole inventory system figured out. That's not the case. I think I was just so conditioned to, at that point, you ordered things. Like even even catalogs, right? You oh, used yeah. to get the Christmas catalog from Pennies and Sears and all of that. And as soon as that thing came out in September or October, we were sitting down making our Christmas list, circling it. There was no internet. You nope. placed an order for something, then it was shipped to you. Who knows how long that took? I don't even, yep. I, time was irrelevant oh, yeah. to me in those days, but that's how you got it. And so I really think that I just witnessed that's how business got done. So I, that's how I needed to do business. Yeah. I, you know, looking back, you know, it looks like it was really intelligent and I wish I could tell you it was intentional, but it wasn't. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. Now your next job that you write about, you call it your most educational sales job, which was selling satellite dishes to people in West Virginia. Now, one thing that I want you to quickly tell the loyal readers about is what is a holler? Man, you got to go up and and, and, uh, you have to experience that. That's not something that can really be defined. But, you know, West Virginia is mountain country. It's hilly. Um, Probably similar in topography to what North Carolina is to a certain degree. But you would go down a dirt road and you would come to a T at the crest of a hill or down at the bottom of a hill. And left is one way, right's the other way, nothing straight ahead. And there's houses on the road going to either side. That's your holler. You're, Interesting. You're, you're in a holler. A holler. Okay. I, I wonder how they came up with that name, but I'm sure there's a good story. I think it is the West Virginia vernacular for hollow. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So now that that's out of the way, let's dive back into what this job entailed and how you made it extra. Um, so you talk about the fact that 60% of the people in West Virginia did not have cable. So that was a huge market share for you to go after. And you created a survey called a cable interest survey to gauge the real opportunity in a specific area, which gives us insight into something you write about later, which is what you did when you first began working for an insurance agency in Tampa, Florida. So the questions that you asked were not specific to either cable or satellite, but to their entertainment habits. You actually called yourself an entertainment consultant on your business card. And to me, you were basically reviewing their total cost of entertainment, which was when I read about it, sounded a lot, a lot of, uh, it sounded a lot like what you do now uh, when you talk to a prospect about their total cost of risk and not just the cost of insurance. So you write about how you would start off with the platinum package, which some salespeople may be nervous about offering since the person may instantly feel like you're trying to upsell them. 
Um, then you write about how you would close a sale by having them come to your showroom. You invested in a popcorn machine to over to add to that overall experience. And you would play the classic movie Jurassic Park. And by the way, that movie made me never want to use a bathroom in the middle of a jungle. <laughs> uh, and by the time that they would be signing the documents, the cup of water scene would be playing on the movie. You had the cup of water on your desk. They would see it. It would be perfect. So with everything that you did, who taught this to you? And if no one did, what experiences did you have to help create that for your prospect who eventually became your client? Yeah, so um, this is me really starting to calculate things at this point. So while I would not take credit for my just-in-time inventory situation in my potholder uh, deal, I, I literally created an entire process around how I was going to go do this. And, and what I realized, I mean, it, again, Josh, it's like anything else. When you get into the insurance industry, it's not like you walk in and boom, you're automatically good at everything. You figured out the easiest way to get from point A to point B, how to prospect, how to do all of this stuff. And so there was a lot of trial and error. You know, when I first started doing that, it was literally park at one end of the street or the holler, you know, one end of the holler and walk to the other end, going door by door with a clipboard, introducing myself. Just like you said, we had created this cable interest survey that basically quantified how much people were paying to be entertained. And I knew that if I could make a tangible dollar amount that they were actually spending, I could sell them whatever I wanted to if I could demonstrate that it would be less money. It was really not that difficult. That part of it, you know, changed the way I, you know, I approached that. It wasn't, hey, can I sell you a satellite dish? Hey, let me do this. And you're right. It's 100%. And I never really looked at it that way. Mm -hmm. But I guess when you innocently write a book and you talk about your experiences, you can see how things morph into what they are today. But it really is no different, right? You've heard me talk enough to know that one of the things that I say all the time is, I don't want to talk about insurance. I want to talk about total cost of risk. Well, if I were to use that same statement in that time of my life, I would say, look, I don't want to talk about TV. I want to talk about your total cost of entertainment. Right. And so it, it was exactly the same thing. We would ask them questions like, do you go to the movies? How often mm -hmm. do you buy refreshments when you're there? Do you rent movies from the video store? Do you get pizza brought in when you do it? And so I could take somebody who didn't realize that they're spending $300 a month and convince them that for $69 a month or whatever it was, I could give them the Mac daddy and they'd never have to leave the house again to go do any of those things. And so Really, to me, that process is what laid the foundation for the rest of my career. Doesn't yeah. matter if I was in the grocery stores, doesn't matter if I was, you know, if I'm out as a producer in an agency or even running an agency. I learned enough about sales process. And I, you know, thankfully, I didn't really have anybody checking up on me. I didn't have anybody guiding or directing me. I just had to figure it out. When you're hungry and living off boxed mac and cheese and, and ramen noodles, you figure it out and you figure it out quick. You, you Maybe not as quick as you want to, but you string along enough long hours in a day and knock on enough doors, you're going to find out what works and then replicate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing that you said that made me go back to um, my philosophy on the milestone moments is you don't realize what you're doing until years later. And you're like, that was the moment 
that helped shaped me into the person that I am. Well, it's kind of and, funny, man, because I never thought about it until just now. Like yeah. when you when you brought that up and said this strikingly, this sounds strikingly similar to yeah. I'm like holy crap, it's the <laughs> exact same thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. And and it took me reading um, the book. I believe it was the second time that I went through it, and I was like, this is just like what he's doing now. It's like you don't just focus on the product that you're selling. You're looking at it in, in a different light, and that's and that's how you're extra, and that's how you take the extra two minutes. Yeah. I think the thing is that I'm most proud of about that whole, that whole deal is from an efficiency standpoint when I realize. So I know that there's insurance people out there that use or have used Kohl's X dates before mm-hmm. back in, back in those days, there was, again, there was no internet. It was the Kohl's manual. It was like leather bound books that it was the Kohl's directory for the year. And you literally went by I don't remember if it was by zip code or by street or whatever it was. You could you could you could triangulate geographically, but it was literally hardbound printed. Oh yeah. And so I realized that when I was going back and forth doing these cable interest surveys, I was eating up a ton of time in my day to do that. And so I I found out about Coles. We had the directory at the company I was working for. I just started dialing for dollars on the phone. Because this is what I knew. I had something people wanted that they didn't currently have. So I didn't have to worry as much about people rejecting me or not being willing to hear what I had to say. If I said, look, I'm just doing a cable interest survey. We're talking about bringing television programming to your area. Could I ask you a few questions? Once I did that, I was essentially filling out my interest survey Mm -hmm. on each of these people. And then we called back and book appointments the next day. We would just line them up one right after the other. So that's probably the thing that I'm the proudest of, of of all of that was figuring out how to take the actual process and streamline it to where I could could interact with more people in a shorter period of time and subsequently close more business. Yeah. The coolest part about that whole thing is when we had the you know ridiculous home theater equipment in the main showroom and that water scene from Jurassic Park would come on and I would have that glass of water sitting on the table in the showroom where we were meeting and you would watch it bounce on the movie and you would see it bounce on the, on the table just because we had the base tricked out to the oh, point yeah. that it would make it do that. Yeah. I wish I could go back and see that. That would have been, that would have been good. So you finish up the forward by, you know, it's saying that all the things you've learned over the last 30 years has led you to this idea of the extra two minutes. Um, when did you come up with the idea of, of the fact that it's just the extra two minutes. Was that something that you've always kind of thought or said throughout your sales career? Like, hey, if you just take an extra couple minutes, you're going to be able to differentiate yourself. Or was it something more recent that that led you to, it's just an extra two minutes? You know, I think it goes back to what, you know, my grandfather uh, on my, my mom's side was, one of a kind, man. I mean, he he was the mayor of the Super Kmart in their area once it opened, and he was retired. Uh, but he was a just great personality. wasn't ever really in sales that I can remember. Uh-huh. But but he he could have been. But he would he would I, I, I will always remember he did woodworking, and he was one hundred percent take the time to do the job right. Take the time to do the job right. Measure twice, cut once. Take mm-hmm. the and you know. Everything about everything he did, it was never take a shortcut, take the time to do the job right. And so for me, 
I never really perceived anything that I was doing as being above and beyond or extra as much as it is me taking the time to do the job to a level where I would put my seal of approval on it, which in effect would be taking the time to do the job the right way. Now, when John decided he was going to bust my chops and tell me that I was extra, Mm -hmm. that's when I sort of got into the whole, you know, extra two minutes. And, you know, I, I just told him, I'm, you know, I said, okay, fine. You know, like as I came up with the idea that I was going to write the book and everything else, I just let him know. I said, you're going to regret that. I said, you're going to be the first person's name. Anybody reads in my book when it comes out. So, (laughs) First person we talked about on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, but I would say, you know, as far as the quote extra two minutes piece, that was the that's what gave me that idea. But as far as actually taking the time to do the job right, that's something that's been beat into my head mm-hmm. my entire life. And listen, we all know, mm-hmm. everybody out there knows that we should take the time to do the job right. Why yeah. don't we? Right? Like if you look at the the, the peer group of who you compete against. Most of the time, it's not taking the time to do the job right. Oh, yeah. It's doing just enough to get by, right? And so I don't want to be known as the guy who, hey, Dave takes adequate care of me. No, right. I don't want that. I want, wow, you should deal with Florida Risk Partners. Not only did they come in and identify all kinds of things that we had no idea about, but then when we decided to do business with them, we were treated like royalty. Mm-hmm. You know, And then they go through the onboarding process and the automation stuff that we have in place and the fact that we do – private labeled wine for our clients and things like that. It's, um, you know, it gets into maybe looking a little extra, but at the same time, to me, it goes back to what I said before, doing the job the right way. And the fact my validation is when I can make a huge impact on somebody to the point where they reach out and say, wow, this is the coolest thing any, anybody's ever done. Right. I mean, and, and it's not like you want your clients to have basically an indifference to how, how you treat them. You know, if you're doing a decent job, you're doing a good job like most people do. And someone asks, oh, what do you think of your insurance agent? Oh, they're okay. You know, like I call them, they take care of me, but there's nothing that differentiates you. We go in and take business from people who are doing a good job like, or a reasonable job. Anyhow, like there's our whole our whole existence is to create doubt with people when we get in and, and speak with them now sometimes we go in and it's a train wreck but there's a lot of the times you go in to get business and somebody's doing a reasonable job it's just not best in class and that's what you portray to the prospect yep all right so we finished up the forward. Now we're going to move on to the next part, which is equipping for battle. Um, and here you lay out some of the essentials that you say that every salesperson needs. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead, list each one, and then we'll go back through and kind of talk about each one briefly. Um, so the things that you should have are a library card, a good pen, a cell phone, a pocket video camera, a calendar link, dynamic email signature, evergreen content and a good attitude. So let's start with the library card. What do you use the library card for? So you know the answer to this I question do know already. The for this. But um, you know, I use it because there are a lot of online tools that are available through libraries that allow you to do research on companies, Reference USA being one of them. And so if you have a library card, you have the ability to go and build, you know, for all practical purposes, you can build an entire well thought out pipeline with that one thing. Right. Yeah. Now for a good pen, obviously this is for your clients to sign documents. 
Um, what pen do you recommend for people? Ooh. Do you want to know what I would recommend or do you want to know what I have? Because well, what I have, what I have is extra, Josh. I mean, I've got the Mont Blanc John F. Kennedy edition. Well, see, I, the, the only nice pen I knew was a Mont Blanc. And I was like, I don't even know how much those are. I've just heard about it. So for maybe someone who's just starting off that isn't at the point where getting, I don't know, a $500 pen, I have no idea how much it costs. Okay. A, I would never pay what this pen costs. Okay. I, I, I won it in a sales contest, but it's, it's a $1,200 pen. Oh, if, there is, if there is such a thing, my first car did not cost yeah. 1200 bucks. So anybody ever sees me, you know, you know, wielding this pen, I didn't pay for it. Okay. That's number you one. schedule that on your home insurance? Yeah. No kidding, man. I probably should. But, you know, I, I, you know, my thought process is this, you know, don't go in with one of those big pens that you can get 10 of them for 88 cents, you know, right. on the back to school sale. You can get like a nice Waterman or a cross pen or something like that. Probably 25 or 30 bucks, honestly. Okay. I just think that it, it, it portrays a certain level of confidence that you have have an actual nice pen that you can hand to your client to to sign contracts, paperwork, whatever else. But the other thing is, it makes sure that you you keep it right. Yeah. I have that same theory about sunglasses. I like to wear Costa sunglasses as opposed to the sunglasses I could get for nineteen ninety nine at the yeah. checkout rack at Walgreens because even though I'm going to pay ten times more for my Costas, I'm never going to lose them. Right. Something I only pay twenty bucks for. I'm not going to pay anywhere near as close attention to, and I'd probably end up spending more in sunglasses over a five-year period than, than what I do. But with this, I, I just think it portrays self-confidence in an image. And the last thing you want to do as a salesperson is have to ask your prospect to borrow their pen to sign your paperwork. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Now, cell phone. And this is a question I'm sure you answered because you've been on a podcast with Jason, but are you an iPhone or a Droid user? I'm an iPhone user. Loyal is the day is long. There you go. Um, one other thing to let the loyal readers know, David recommends getting the one with the most possible space for being able to store video. Now, for the pocket video camera, you recommend DJI Osmo Pocket if you don't want to carry your cell phone around. But I would say it's worth having both of them because they both kind of serve different functions. They do. Yeah. I like that camera a lot. Actually, it records in HD. It's got good, uh, a good mic that you don't have to use an external mic. It picks up audio very well. And we, you know, I originally was using it to produce content for killing commercial and Florida risk partners. And I actually started carrying it around now and use it to do video loss control visits. When I go to visit a client, it might be that I can go to a resort Mm -hmm. And do a loss control visit, but because of everything we're dealing with with COVID and all of that, maybe the management team that I would normally be with doesn't want to, you know, right. be around for social distancing reasons. Yep. I can go around, do my loss control visit, videotape the whole thing with my comments, and then come back and present that to them via email, and they can get, you know, the written portion of it, but also actually see video proof of of what I'm talking about. And yep. I talk in other places in the book about things that I record, that it makes it very, very easy to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, now for the calendar link. Now, I personally implemented this in my agency probably four years ago. And along with an e-signature platform, probably the best decision um, that I've ever made. And for those of you, there are several out there um, 
for, you know, for using this. Uh, one thing you want to make sure that you block off the time appropriately. That would, that would, that would be my one suggestion. Anything about a calendar link to, to tell the loyal readers. Yeah. Um, they can be a little tricky. Like you mm. got to know how much of a buffer to allow yourself and you program that in. And for me, it's even crazier because we use HubSpot as our CRM. So there's a calendar link that's on my normal email that feeds into HubSpot specifically because I want to capture anybody who books time with me through Florida Risk Partners inside of our CRM. Right. But then for Killing Commercial, the CRM I use is Entreport and I use Calendly for my calendar link. So both of those have to be completely integrated with you know my Outlook so that I'm not double booking or whatever else. But really the biggest thing is just knowing, is having it, having it set up to where you have a buffer in between appointments because inevitably I could be on this call with you right now. We could be recording this podcast. Right. And while I'm on the podcast with you, somebody on the internet could have gone in and booked 30 minutes with me. And if I don't have that buffer built in to block my time out, right. I may not even know that I've been booked because I'm not checking my email right now. Right. Yeah. And that actually happened to me this morning. I had someone, a client book uh, a call with me about an hour before we recorded and I, it was limited to only 30 minutes. Um, and I, we went over just a few minutes, but yeah, you have to have that buffer built in or you end up, uh, some upset people after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Dynamic email signature. This is something I personally don't have. Um, I would like to have, but long story as to why I can't have it, I won't bore everyone with that. But, um, you mentioned using video a lot. So what does your actual email signature look like? Do you have your name and agency logo and then a link to something they can click on to watch a video? How, what What is that for you? Yeah. So what I wanted to do, I'm not, you know, I think video just takes things to a completely different level. Mm -hmm. You you can, you know, I, I, I witness it every day of every week. You know, when people call to talk to me, whether it be about killing commercial or, any number of other things, even if it's blog posts where I'm in there, they feel like they know you, you know, people feel like they know who you are or that there's some perceived relationship there, even though there's not right. It's, it's like how weird you feel when you watch the news every night. And then all of a sudden you're at a restaurant and the anchor from the news team yes. is sitting across from you yes. and you want to go up and talk to them because you feel like, you know, them, but then you realize, Oh, these people don't have a clue who I am. They're going to think I'm some sort of a stalker. Yes. It's the same way video does that, right? And I like that video does that because I'm an approachable person. If you want to pretend like you know me, I'll I'll do that dance. You know, we yeah. can go all day long, but um, you know, what I did was for a couple of reasons. Normal email signature, but I have the link in there to book time, right? So, yep. schedule time with David. When you click that, instead of it taking you to just my calendar link, it actually takes you to a landing page. And on that landing page is a video of me introducing myself, talking about who I am, you know, that I'm a father and a husband and all of this stuff to make me appear human. And I embedded my calendar on that landing page so that they could still book the appointment from there. But I wanted it to go, again, that one extra step because right. I felt like it would give me more um, a better shot of relating to somebody or having them relate to me when we actually talk. 
And yep. you get some analytics, right? You can see how many people actually watch the video, how much time they spend on the page. Do they go? Because now they're on my web domain. They went from my email to my web domain. So do they go to other pages? Are they checking out content while they're there? There's just a whole lot of things that it can drive that doesn't hurt. It doesn't really take a whole bunch of extra effort to create that. But you might like really blow. I get more positive comments on that than a lot of other things that I do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had people, you know, multiple times. Thank you so much for letting me, you know, book a time on your calendar. It makes things so much easier. One other thing I would mention about that is the one that I've signed up with. You can just use their website. I would recommend embedding it on your own website so you have them on your home turf that they're not going off off to someone else's. Um, so that leads us into the next one, which is evergreen content. I'm not going to ask you about should people be writing uh, articles about COVID-19 because we <laughs> we probably yeah. already know the answer to that. Um, so do you use your evergreen content as part of the automation prospect or automation process with your prospects and client? Or is it used for something else? Like how do you, what do you usually use your evergreen content for? Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him, I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed, let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia, we saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual intel, that's with two L's, that's virtual, I-N-T-E-L-L, Com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, recruiting, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel. Cast certified. If you put together the right content strategy, the answer is all of the above. Okay. You can use it. You can use it as target marketing for people. Like if I did a series on the workers' compensation experience modifier, I could create a drip email campaign that goes out to prospects that have mod issues that I've already identified. Yeah. I can use it for uh, people who are searching, right? People are who are looking for information on the experience mod. And I'm essentially just got content that's floating out there. Google works its magic and they find me and they go read from there. I can use it um, after it gives you credibility in a sales appointment. So if I'm talking to somebody who has a high mod, I could say, listen, it, it's apparent that nobody's ever come in and really dove deep rather than us wasting a bunch of time that we have together. Now, I wrote a series of articles on this that I think you would find interesting. And if you don't want to read them, I did them as videos too. I'm just going to shoot this stuff over to you when I get back so that you can see it. Now you have instant credibility right. that you created content around this. You're a subject matter expert. 
you know, whatever. And it works, man. But I mean, the key is evergreen, right? Evergreen, meaning right. it's always good. It will always be relevant. Things like what is coinsurance? What is a statement of values? What is a business income worksheet? What is return to work? I could go on and on, but I think that's where people miss the boat, right? I, I agree that you have to sprinkle things in. Like you have to hit current events in any content strategy to make it work. But evergreen is the gas that's going to drive the engine over the long haul. And Han Ryan Hanley has a quote. I use it all the time when I talk about content strategy. But I heard him say one time that every time you publish a blog post, you just hired a salesperson to work for you 24 hours a day. Think about that. I oh, mean, yeah. my goal is to have a thousand salespeople working for me 24 hours a day on the internet. And the more you get out there, the more opportunity you have for somebody to discover you yep. as a result of that. But it's not, it can't be rushed. Nope. It has to be well thought out and deliberate, scheduled and published in, a, in an appropriate cadence. And it works. But I mean, you can, if you have a good evergreen content strategy, you're golden. You can use it so many different ways that once you look back and see how you were able to repurpose things, mm -hmm. it's worth the investment of the time that it takes for you to create it. Exactly. Well, then that leads us to our final thing for equipping for battle, and that is a good attitude. Pretty self-explanatory. It's very obvious. But to me, this not only applies to myself, but to the people I want to bring onto my team and my agency and also the type of clients that I want to have as part of my agency. So what are your feelings on making sure that not just you having the good attitude, but making sure your team members and I think overlooked a lot is the clients, making sure that the clients have the right attitude? I think that 100% of that boils down to the culture you want to create in your agency, right? Yeah. I think, And I also think that it's low-hanging fruit to talk about, well, you got to make sure you hire the right people and that you train and develop them and you treat them the right way and do all of the things that we know we need to do to foster a good culture in our agency. But then we overlook how one bad client could destroy that entire culture. Right. You know, now all of a sudden your account manager, your CSR, who's not happy with the way they're talked to, they're talked down to, they're treated bad. Maybe somebody's making inappropriate comments to them, whatever else. This person shouldn't be your client. They, there's a misalignment of values there, you know. So why are they your client? And I think it's very difficult for most agencies or or salespeople in general to walk away from revenue, right? I mean, it's hard, but after you've had it come back to bite you enough times, you realize that okay probably need to walk away from this one. And I use the example, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it mm -hmm. in the book, but I use the example of the empty seat at the table. Okay. And, and to me, anytime I go meet with somebody, when I go in and sit down with them in the back of my mind, I'm an env I'm envisioning a conference room table that is populated with all of the clients in my book of business that has one empty seat sitting there. Yeah. And the question I ask myself is, does this person deserve a seat at the table? Yeah. Do they belong at the table with everybody else in my book? Or am I going to pollute the culture of my agency 
Am I going to diminish the value proposition that I deliver to everybody else in my book by bringing this person on? If you sit down and you look at every account that you're looking to bring on with that filter on it, it it changes the game completely. Definitely. Completely. You don't have headaches. Yeah, you might grow a little slower, but you're growing what I would say the right way. You're you're adding people that are going to help you perpetuate your business and you're driving value in theirs and your people truly enjoy, the people on your team truly enjoy working with your client base. So, so we have no problem with telling people no. Yeah. It can't be our client. Or if we accidentally let them in and they shouldn't have been, we have no problem asking them to leave. Yeah. So I think later on, one of the things that you say in the book uh, is you slow down to speed up, I think is the is the phrase that uh, and I also have um, an interesting kind of view on the seat at the table that I want that we'll talk about when we get to that portion of the book that I wanted to to ask you about. But that leads us into chapter one, which is write a business plan. And it's something that I am all too familiar with being part of Killing Commercial. Um and I remember when I sat down to write out my business plan and how overwhelmed I felt. <laughs> uh, like you write in the book, it's not easy. I did get frustrated. I quit several times, but I eventually pushed through with your help and I finished it. And what I think the loyal readers need to know is that this is a living document. And you talk about that. It's a living document. And because we both have a love for Disney, it made me think of a quote from Walt Disney when he said, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. And so for me, I wanted to modify it to kind of fit what we're talking about. And so I came up with your business plan will never be completed. It will continue to evolve and grow as long as you have a passion, desire, and a determination to keep going. So what I'd like to do is provide the loyal readers with what steps are part of the business plan, and then we'll go through each together. So define your mission, analyze the market, define the opportunities, and then construct the plan. So define your mission, a personal mission statement, and it can be one to two sentences. Um, how? What's some quick advice that you could give the loyal readers on coming up with their personal mission statement? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously personal, so it's going to be something different for every person out there. Um, one of the things that I always say is this is also kind of where your elevator pitch starts to come in. So if you can put together a personal mission statement, or even if you're working as an agency principal and putting together a mission statement for your agency, if you can figure out a way to take everything that you want somebody to know about you and then cut it to about a tenth of, of the words, then you're going to have your personal mission statement or the mission statement for your agency. And so um, I would say start broad and then whittle it down. You know, it's it's an interesting experience when you write a book because the finished product is always way different than what you thought it was going to be or what it was as you were working in. One of the things that I learned through going going through this process when I wrote the book was I used the Hemingway editor because I would write in longer sentences that were more similar to how I speak as opposed to how I should write. And it forced me to take longer, more complex sentences and bust them down into this is really all you need to say to get your point across. I think that's where people 
you know, missed the mark, right? They, they missed the mark in that they want it to be this verbose, flowery statement, and people are left scratching their head with, what are you talking about? I didn't even know what you just said to me. You know, maybe there's your spinoff podcast. Can you explain this mission statement? To me? <laughs> you know, but but I think that's what you get into. People are so worried about how flowery it is or whatever else. It could be really simple. You know, um, Grant Botma's got a good tag. I don't know if he classifies it as his mission statement or he classifies it as his tagline, but you always hear him talk about we love people through finances. Yep. Okay, great. Exactly. That pretty much tells you what they do. Do you need anything more than that in there? Well, no, you don't have to have anything. But how many people do you think ask him, what do you mean by that? When you say love people by finance, now the dialogue is started. Right. You know, you don't ha hear him say, well, we provide real estate, mortgage and insurance services. And I also have a software company and I wrote a book. I mean, you don't have to tell everybody every single thing you do. Tell them what you want them to know that's most important about your business and what a relationship with doing business with you would look like in your golden. Yeah. Very good. So the next part is analyzing the market. And so this is where you figure out the possibilities are available. And I think most importantly, it's if the market you are attempting to serve will actually allow you to accomplish your goals. So I guess uh, sort of a yes or no question is, did you ever start looking at a specific niche or industry? You started down the process of, is this something worth doing? And you realize that my focus is either too small or this type of industry is something that it's not going to be feasible, even if I wrote everything that was possible. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a couple of really good real world, real time examples. Okay. So we, as you know, we've talked about it. We've got some landing pages and niche sites that we use to try and put together some passive income streams at Florida risk. And we also use that same strategy for target markets, vertical markets, whatever you want to call them. Right. We had just wrapped up everything we needed to do, digital assets and all of that for floridafitnessinsurance.com mm -hmm. and, and floridachildcareinsurance.com. And two weeks later, COVID hit. So Pretty difficult to get into gyms and childcare places in the middle of an international pandemic. Yes. So I realized at that point, okay, great. We're probably not in a situation where this is going to work. And what's crazy is we had just literally contracted with Philadelphia to be able to write those two classes of business and a couple of others that they're good at that we were building micro niche products with. And we couldn't even submit business to them. Oh. And so... It's um, it's interesting, but you know, I th it happens a lot, and it's what I said before. I always look for opportunity. I always feel like I'm a very early adopter at seizing opportunity, mm -hmm. but I also get down the road of understanding. Okay, this isn't going to work. I'm not saying I cut bait prematurely. I'll tweak things and I'll try and rework it or whatever else. But if it gets to the point where all of a sudden my time is spent, I'm spending more time than what it's worth for me to try and force something to work. My ego does not keep me pushing down that path. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not a proud person in terms of that stuff. If I lose, what did I learn from it? Move on and let's create the next best thing and, and go with that. But um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And sometimes again, it goes back to nature, right? Nature put exactly. me in that position. That wasn't nurture. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the next one is to define the opportunities. This is where you use numbers and this is the place uh, that you define how many people or businesses that you have available 
as prospects. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit in just a moment. So we'll kind of gloss over that. Um, but then the final one is the construct the plan. And this will take the longest of all the steps. Now you recommend to take 30 to 45 days to do this. Why does this part take so long? Is it because of how overwhelming it can be to people? Or is it because as you're going through it, you can change so many things and you need that extra time to be able to put it all together? I think both. I think it's overwhelming to people. I think that a lot of people have, unless they've had to do it for a project in business school or something, they've never even seen one before. Right. So they're, they're, they're like, wow, this is crazy. This thing's like eight pages long and it's just the template. Now I have to fill it out. What does that even look like? Then they start getting into it. And, you know, something you might have done at the beginning you get three segments in, it's like, you know what? I really don't like the way that turned out. Let me go back and, and tweak it. And so I think, you know, again, it needs to be well thought out. You know, part of the reasons why I say 30 to 45 days is really to alleviate that anxiety. So if somebody looks at it the first time and they're like, crap, I'm not doing this. Yeah. If they know they have 30 to 45 days, they may look at that in, in a little different light. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, in the book, and this is on page nine, for those of you who are following along, you tell people to start at the end and work your way backwards, which makes perfect sense. Um, you state that producers who work for your agency, which is Florida Risk Partners, make 40% commission on new business and 25% commission on renewal. And so you use the example of a producer making 100000 a year, which I feel making that six-figure income is pretty much beat into our brains all throughout childhood, teenage years, college, adulthood. It's you have to make six figures. And so you make math, math simple because we all need math to be simple. Uh, if a producer wants to make $100,000 and they are paid 40% commission on new business, they need to generate $250,000 in agency commissions. Basic math. Now, for those of you who kind of instantly sat straight up and said, wait, 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 what about renewal commissions? That's when it gets complicated and we need spreadsheets. So they have to work with us, right? Yeah, I mean, I really did it because somebody wants to make 100000 a year. It's easy to say, well, here's how you do it. You can go out and write a quarter million dollars in new business and you'll be at your hundred. Yeah, we don't we don't need to get into all the permutations and crap that you would have to do to figure out with renewal income, and then then you start getting into retention and oh yes, you know all the other stuff. So yeah, work, work, work with us, people. Exactly, work with us. So, um, and then this is where I get excited. So then you write about what type of revenue accounts you want to write as a producer, and in the book you say that Florida Risk Partner generally focuses on twenty five to fifty thousand dollar revenue accounts, and. I think this is the key thing for people to 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 hear. Um, this is coming straight from the book. If you want to write twenty five to fifty thousand dollar revenue accounts, you need to prospect to twenty five to fifty thousand dollar revenue accounts. So, David, do you feel that producers, insurance agents, or salespeople that they just make things harder on themselves than is needed? And what are some of the pitfalls that people will run into when they are trying to figure out what prospects to go after to achieve their revenue goals? Yeah, so I think that we make things way too complicated, man. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that it's evident in a whole bunch of different places in society that we also don't know how to delay gratification appropriately. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very difficult. And, and the last thing I will say about that is, not everyone, but by and large, producers have egos. 
Sometimes those egos are relatively fragile. Sometimes they start freaking out and they don't stick to the plan. Right. And so I can tell you from firsthand experience, even dealing with producers in, in, in my organization, I tell them the same thing. If you want to write twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar revenue accounts, then you should prospect twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar revenue accounts. Because if all you ever do is prospect twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar accounts, there's a one hundred percent chance you're only going to write twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar accounts. Again, not complicated, but we make it complicated. And what happens is a couple of things. The reason the business plan is so important mm-hmm. is because. I think that a lot of places out there will just say, hey, what can I count on you for next year? How much new business revenue are you going to write? What, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. Or I'm going to need 100,000 out of you. I'm going to need 50 out of you or whatever, whatever it is. They dictate that. I don't want a goal. I want a plan. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Tell me what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And that's, that's what's important. And so if you can take that stuff and you can start at the end and work your way back, you break it down into what you have to do every week and every day so that if you're following those steps and you know that you're checking those boxes every single day, the sales are going to follow, right? Where people fall off is when they don't trust the system and they start saying, well, let me go talk to this guy. He he looked, you know, he told me he'd be willing to talk to me. Well, it's a $2,000 restaurant account that's canceled 10 times in the last two years for non-payment of premium. That's not 25 to 50,000. It's not our ideal client. It's not our ideal prospect. None of that. Why are you screwing with it? Because they paid attention to them. Because they knew that they could see some level of forward progress. I had a guy on my team that's not with me anymore. But he couldn't understand why I was irritated with him that he had gone out and physically spent time outside sales, not inbound small business unit. He went out and he found an account that was like $500 in premium. And he's talking about it as a win in sales meeting. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? You do you that. understand? And he's like, well, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, 500 is better than nothing. I said, no, no, no. You have to understand something, man. If I'm paying you 40% of that 500, there's only $300 to the agency to handle all of the associated costs, including the taxes and everything else that I'm responsible for. I lose money on that. He goes, well, if I go out and get 10 of them, I said, no, don't go get another one. Don't get a single other account that's $500 because all you're doing is bringing me 10 more accounts that are losing money and you've made my money loss problem even bigger than what it is right now. The reason he did it is because he was struggling. He, he wasn't getting the traction that he wanted in the, in the middle market. So he found something that was a quick win that made him feel good about himself and, and really didn't understand the impact that it had on the agency. On the flip side, when you start at the back and you work your way to the front and you define what all of those activities and steps are, and then you have a process and and systems in place to measure that stuff when you're running a sales team, you have the ability as the leader of the organization to be more patient because you can see people following the process. One of the things I say all the time is it's never the process. It's always the person. The process works. The person is the one who doesn't execute it right 
or they deviate from it. And so I have one of my producers that's on my team now that was going through a funk, man. I mean, it happens to every single one of us. It's not always rainbows and unicorns in my world either. There, Believe it or not, I don't win every time. I get hung up on. People don't let me get past the gatekeeper. It happens. But this guy was just churning. Like he was going hard. And I could see inside of HubSpot, he was doing everything he was supposed to be doing. And as the leader and as someone who had been in sales in that role, in that exact position before, I knew that this had to be wearing on him because we're like two months with no real traction, okay? But keep in mind, Josh, you write four $50,000 accounts in a year, you've really made good money, right? So um, so I, I picked up the phone and called him on a Friday afternoon. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, I said, I just, I said, I want to touch base with you quick. He's like, oh, I knew this call was coming. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I know, man, I know. I said, no, you don't know. I said, listen, I called to tell you that I appreciate how hard you're working. And I know that it's got to be frustrating for you because I've been in that position before. I said, I want you to know I'm watching everything you're doing in the CRM, not because I'm trying to be punitive. I'm trying to be supportive. And what I want you to understand is you're doing everything I've asked you to do, everything you could possibly do. There are just times where nature doesn't allow that to happen, right? Yes. All I'm going to tell you is stay the course. You are right there at the tipping point where you just need to push through. And I'm willing to bet that in the next two weeks, you're going to have a couple of things hit and it's going to validate everything you've done for the last two months. He's like, I really appreciate that, man. He goes, I was really down on myself, but if, if you're cool with how everything's going and you can see that I'm doing the work, I trust your experience and everything else. Well, guess what happened? He wrote. Within two weeks, the dude had $75,000 in revenue. Wow. Because he hit on one that was a half million, literally the mon Monday or Tuesday after we had that phone call. Wow. And then he hit another one and then he hit another one. So, you know, if you have the business plan, and it's signed off on by everybody, you know, that has a stake in it. Oh, yeah. Then you have a roadmap to follow and just execute it. Stick with it. Yeah, you might need to change something here or there. But for all practical purposes, when you get dialed down all the way into what your daily activity is going to be, just do that. Yeah. Do it and it works. Very good. Well, we'll kind of run through the rest of the math because uh, once you get to the end, you you see how how simple it is, but how it's kind of surprising at the end. So you write that, you know, in order to acquire the number of overall revenue that you want, and if the goal is 250,000, then you have to write 10, $25,000 accounts. So then you talk about, okay, if we're going to close those 10 clients, how many do you need to present to in order to close the 10? Um, you say that if you need more than 30 accounts that you probably need to stop reevaluate how you're doing or join killing commercial shameless plug for you. Uh, after that, it's like, okay, if we're going to present to 20 to 30 accounts, we'll just say 20. How many do we actually have to talk to, to be able to present? And you say 40 and you're like, okay, great. We're at the 40. And then the final number is how many prospects do you need to get down to that 40? And you recommend 240 which is 20 accounts per month, 
and uh, I was yeah, 20 accounts per month, and which translates to five per week, which is one per day. So you have gone from taking what could seem like a daunting number of 250,000 in revenue, talking to 240 people throughout an entire year, and it is now one per day. So in your agency, how many accounts do you and your prospects call on a year to be able to get to the number that you want to actually close? Yeah. I mean, again, there's a lot of variables that are in there, right? So yeah. it's going to depend on what number you plug into the average revenue. It's going to depend on how seasoned the salesperson is because I don't want this to, to sound arrogant or condescending, but I like my chances of closing a deal better than I like somebody that's only been doing it for a year or two. So for me, there's more efficiency in how I go about my processes. So if I and number one, I'm not out cold calling all the time. I'm getting ready to start again because we have a contract with a carrier that's requiring us to put a million dollars with them in the first year. So I kind of like uh, I, I kind of like it. I'm going to get to you know come off the mountain and show them what's up a little bit. But um, you know, I would say on average, you know, my guy's pipeline starts at around maybe a thousand. Clients okay. and gets whittled down to somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five hundred that mm -hmm. are realistic because you're going to cut probably fifty percent when you look at it, and we we go by four different classifications: lead, suspect, prospect, client. Mm -hmm. If you're a lead, all you are is a name on a list. That's it. If you're a suspect, we've had some level of interaction with you, and there's going to be follow up. You become a prospect when you have given us some sort of actionable information whether it be an experience mod audit, whatever else, and then you're a client, obviously, when you become a client. So for us, the further they get down that funnel, the higher the probability that we're actually going to close the business. But I would say at any given time, well, I can tell you right now, in HubSpot, um, across five people that are in production, there's roughly 3,000 contacts and companies that we're working across You know, five people. Okay, very good. That became a very easy... Yeah, and I question to answer once I remembered what I saw as my contacts in HubSpot. Exactly, and that kind of and that gives the loyal readers an idea of how many that that they should be thinking about, or, or how many that someone like you is is working with. That it's you know maybe it's higher than what they thought, maybe it's lower than what they thought. Um, so next in the chapter, you write about how you to define your activities because once the numbers are done, which they can be changed because you're again your business plan is a living document. You have to come up with a roadmap to hit those numbers. And some of the things that you write about are email marketing, cold call marketing, telemarketing, email follow-ups, phone follow-ups, handwritten follow-ups, and then social media interaction. Uh, obviously, it's not an all-inclusive list, and some things may not be done 100% on the person's uh, own time or, or done by them. Of the things, are there any any of the activities that outside of automation that you allow someone else besides the producer to handle or some of the things, or maybe something that's not on the list that you would tell the loyal readers that they need to, to consider when they're doing this. Yeah. I mean, most of the time we run really lean, man. So, I mean, I think one of the things to understand too, is you're going through and doing your business plan and all of those other things um, you know, it goes back to what I teach in Killing Commercial, and I don't want to get too far off the subject, but it goes into what's your ideal prospect profile, right? 
Who is it that you really want to represent? Who do you want to call? What's the size and shape of that? And, and part of that, as we looked at it, is what are the servicing needs of those accounts? So if you look at the things that I personally go after, we have the ability to run really lean on the service side because there's just not a lot of post-sale service work. We don't have a lot of bleed over between what service our service team handles versus what the producers themselves would be involved in. Um, so the 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 producers are pretty much soup to nuts, everything at all in the sales process. Um, we do have a HubSpot person that does nothing but program HubSpot. It's a, a contractor that I use. Yeah. So he's involved in a lot of those things. So if I have a producer that says, you know what, I really need your help. Let's do some A-B testing on email templates. They'll, they'll work with David and he'll help them figure all of that stuff out. I mean, so, but I want them running their book like it's their business. You know, that's it. You need to run your book as if you are running your own agency and your book is, is your agency. And so, you know, I don't know if they engage other people for help along the way outside of that. I don't micromanage to that level. I just basically look to make sure that they're hitting the numbers. That's it. I mean, my job's easy. Are you hitting your numbers? Yes or no. If you're not, now let me log in and find out if the activity's there. If the activity's there, I know you're going to hit your numbers. If the activity's not there, you need to find another job. I mean, it's really that simple. Well, very good. Very good. Well, I know we've got just a couple more minutes before we both have to get to, to our next thing. So we're at the end of the chapter, but at the end of each chapter, you have the extra two minutes. And in this, you talk about your personal board of directors. Um, real briefly, tell the loyal readers what the personal board of directors is, who's on it, how long you've been meeting with them, um, just so they can get an idea of what what they should be looking at to be able to do this. And then we'll wrap things up. Yeah. I mean, every company, like not every company, but you know, most companies, not for profits, whatever, they have a board of directors of people who are really strong in very specific areas of life that come together. And the theory is that be, by meeting together and working through issues, they always have a better solution and a stronger company or institution overall as a result. And I just decided to replicate that for myself. So I identified what are the things that I need help with? Who are the best salespeople that I could include? Who's the best business person, you know, overall operations person, you know, who, you know, who from a legal perspective would be good for me to have, who from a spiritual perspective should be in there, who from a, um, you know, physical fitness perspective should be in there. So I have a personal trainer. I have a pastor. I have business owners, an attorney, a banker. I've got a little bit of everything. I've got total of about 10 people now, 10 to 12 people that are on there and nobody's really ever cycled off. We actually have had a pretty good time. I take them all to breakfast or lunch once a quarter. We deep dive. I let them beat me up. You know, they ask me to stand behind some of the things that are going on. They give me ideas. I adapt. We move on and then we meet for lunch again in the next quarter. But I've also been able to plug some of them in with each other and help them grow their businesses because of interacting in that capacity. But for me, it's just like you said earlier, you know, <clears throat> Disneyland's never going to be done, mm -hmm. right? I'm never going to be done. The day I think that I've arrived or I have nothing else to learn or that I can't get any better is the day that I get my plow cleaned on the streets because I stop. And I think, you know, as leaders, as salespeople, as just genuine, it's human beings who want to be the best version of themselves. 
you constantly have to seek that. You can't be afraid to get negative feedback from people yeah. or constructive criticism and then use it, right? So that's the whole idea. I just wanted to I, – I, it's a fancy name for an advisory group or whatever, but these are my quote-unquote life coaches Yeah, as I look at it. Well, it's definitely something I'm, I'm looking into. So, well – what an amazing episode, David. I want to thank you for being the first guest on Explain This Book to Me. Now, when Jason and I were talking about turning this from a limited series into an actual podcast, you were the first person that came to my mind. I've only known you for about six months, but you really have had a tremendous impact on me. So I just want to say thank you. Absolutely, man. It's my pleasure. And see, you just made it worth my while. You validated yeah, my existence. Exactly. And you didn't even have to. You didn't even have to buy something from me today to do that. Exactly. Uh, now, to you, the loyal readers, thank you for downloading another episode of Explain This Book to Me, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer the questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.